Mr. David Page. David, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? Thanks I'm for having good. me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. And uh, man, you've had quite a life, it seems like. I try to stay busy. <laughs> that sounds like an understatement, a lot of it. Well, <laughs> every few years, I feel the need to reinvent my career. So mm. uh, it keeps things interesting. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, after looking through your bio and stuff, and I was like, wow, uh, this person's been a lot of places, seen a lot of things. And I was struck by the Berlin Wall deal. Why is that? Because I lived in Germany during that time. How's that? I used to live in where? Germany. And Nuremberg. Where? where oh, Nuremberg. I, I, I was based out of Frankfurt. Yeah, I was born in Frankfurt area, huh. actually. Military? Military, yeah. yes. Yeah. And uh, we have a piece of the Berlin Wall at my parents' house. I don't. And I was there the night it all started. You were there. You and David Hasselhoff, apparently. Right? <laughs> uh, apparently. <laughs> I mean, that had to be an, a, an incredible experience for you. Uh, it was it was remarkable because you just didn't see it coming. And mm. understand something. Uh, Nightly News, NBC Nightly News, decided to broadcast from the Brandenburg Gate at that point because, and I had followed the collapse of communism that amazing year from country to country, and the pressure was now on East Germany because it had become an alternative route out uh, from Czechoslovakia and such. So clearly, the place to bring the show over and do a big deal on on the whole situation was berlin but we clearly um helped create the party atmosphere mm -hmm. that night to light the brandenburg gate requires some pretty powerful lighting instruments so we had basically created a scene that that could have felt like disneyland in the first place then shortly before the the evening newscast began a cameraman uh, came running into the trailer we were using as an office, yelling that they're coming out. I said, what's coming out? He said, East Berliners, that they're streaming into the West. Now, it wasn't happening at Checkpoint Charlie, which was the American crossing. I think right. it was the British crossing. I didn't believe him. I said, Peter, that's impossible. He re-racked the tape and played it through his viewfinder. And yeah, it was possible. It, it tracked back to a relatively innocuous statement that an East German government representative had made in a news conference earlier that day about people are free to leave, which is the sort of, yes, we're democratic thing that you heard from East Berlin all the time. Right. This time it was a bit different. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. And, and then somehow food has been a part of all of these adventures. Well, like. when I when I moved, I, I had not considered living internationally. I was yeah. a typical American. And then I got a phone call from NB, at my NBC desk in Chicago and 
somebody on the other end said, do you have any interest in moving to London? And I thought, oh, that'd be cool. At which point they said, okay, you're one of two candidates. I'm thinking, don't, don't tell me that. Tell me right. what you decide. <laughs> anyway, after an agonizing couple of weeks, I, I got the gig. I moved to London uh, and from there to Frankfurt and from there to Budapest um, and began to experience all sorts of countries and cultures I had never really thought about visiting. I was, as I look back on it, as landlocked an American as you can get, Real proud that I'd been all across this country, mm -hmm. but the idea of visiting other countries just wasn't a reality. Now I'm over there, I'm going from country to country about which I've known nothing in the past, and it becomes apparent that the gateway to a society is its food, both in an understanding of its locale, its history, people eating what is grown in a particular area. And also, let's face it, food, sitting down to eat together, is the great social lubricant. Yeah, It's, it's a wonderful thing that we as human beings have done for millennia. Um, and, and I got to do that, although I'll tell you a funny story. First time I was in Vienna, I said to the locals who we would have help us out on each trip, the same group of guys. And I said, hey, I've never been to Vienna before, so when we're done with this story, would you take me where you guys go to eat? Yeah. And I'm thinking I'm going to get schnitzel or something. <laughs> they took me to an American barbecue joint. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've experienced yeah. that too in a sense. I was opening a fitness club in Malaysia many years ago, and I'd never been there. And I said, oh, mm -hmm. we should go to, you know, get some really great Malaysian food. You know, it's a very eclectic society. And they wanted to go to like Papa John's. And yeah. they wanted to go to like Johnny Rocket. I'm like, why would you eat this? Like, why do you want this? Well, like, it's, it's, it's American food. Look at that. American food. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting because so many of our foods, well, some of our foods, especially pizza, are being sent back to the rest of the world after being Americanized mm. and are seen in other countries as American food. Uh, the pizza uh, folks stream to American pizza chains internationally, right. but not for Italian pizza. It's for <laughs> American pizza. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. I mean, that's... Yeah. And I, I read that uh, you were eating... Uh, some interesting food before meeting uh, Yasuf Arafat, I believe. Oh, I we were uh, at the time the PLO was still mm -hmm. considered a terrorist organization. We were trying to interview Arafat. Yeah. There's a bunch of um, ritual you have to go through before he sits down and talks. You have to have a meal. And you never know when it's going to happen. So he calls yeah. us. I don't know. We were called at like two or three in the morning. Ended up at a long table um, with him at one end and uh, my crew and correspondent and uh, a number of his hangers on around the table. And that was back in the day when you did not say the word Israel in front of anyone from the PLO. Yeah. The closest they would come to acknowledging Israel's existence was to refer to the Zionist entity. Mm. We all had two passports one for all over the world and the other one just for Israel. Because if you use your main passport and it got stamped in or out of Israel, it was not going to be worth anything 
in most of the rest of the Arab world. Anyway, we're sitting at the table and there's a basket of fruit in the middle of the table and our sound man suddenly, and everyone's talking, it's a pleasant meal. Uh, our sound man suddenly reaches out, grabs something out of the fruit basket and exults, oh, look, blood oranges. I haven't had one of those since I was in Israel. Oh. The entire table comes to a halt, kind of like the old commercials for that brokerage house. There was, I don't know, maybe two or three seconds of complete silence. And then everyone continued talking as if that had never happened. Right. <laughs> was that a surreal situation to be in? Yeah, it was a little bizarre. Well, you know? no, it, it's a little bizarre. But yeah. there are things when you're... Uh, carrying the credentials of a major American news organization, mm -hmm. you get access to an awful lot of things. Um, yeah. I mean, Arafat would talk to the Western media when it was in his interests to talk to the Western media. We knew that. Um, so yes, the, the first time you do something like that, you kind of go, I can't believe this is happening. But from, from that point on, it's, it's doing your job. Yeah. I would imagine you know, if you're doing it regularly, you're going to start, becomes, you know, you can get used to a lot of things. Yeah, well, you don't want to get jaded. Yeah. You know, you, because then you start to look at things from this rather superior point of view. You don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, something you would do on a regular basis. Sure. Definitely. So where's talking about food, writing about food, producing shows about food? Where did that come from? Has that been uh, something you'd always loved? It was complete happenstance. No, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I've, I've always liked to eat. Uh, moving internationally really wet my appetite, to make a terrible pun, uh, of interest in different kinds of foods and the quality of foods and, and how food is made and presented. But I had no particular intention of getting into food journalism. Uh, when I came back to the States, I was a show producer for NBC News, then ABC News. Then I left and eventually attempted to go out on my own as a production company. And a production company can either be what mine eventually turned into, which is a bricks and mortar operation with mm -hmm. dozens of employees, or it can be what it was when I initially declared myself a production company, which is a guy with a cell phone with a recorded message that says you've reached page productions. <laughs> um, I pitched shows for quite a while, got nowhere, was concerned about starving, speaking of food. Right. And I called a friend of mine, Al Roker, who is the a main character mm -hmm. on the Today Show. Back earlier, he had been on my show, the Weekend Today Show before he had moved up to the main show. And he also had a production company. I called him up, I said, hey Al, you got any work? And he said, yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff for the Food Network, you wanna, you wanna take some of it on? So I did. And eventually he had me, he was subcontracting hour long programs to me, including one on the history of diners. When I eventually moved on uh, in the realization that to make a success of my company, I was gonna have to sell directly, I started pitching the Food Network a lot, and they started saying no consistently. 
Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't get them interested in anything until one day I was on the phone with the executive whose life I kept ruining by calling. And out of frustration, she finally said to me, don't you have anything else about diners? Mm. And I said, oh yeah, I've been developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. Told her a little about it. And she said, you know, that's, that sounds interesting. It was late on a Thursday or a Friday. She said, we have a development meeting on Tuesday. Get me a write-up on Monday. I hung up the phone, and now I had a problem because, no, I had not been developing anything called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I had just created the title, pulled it out of thin air or a body part, depending upon how you want to picture (laughs) the situation. I spent the weekend calling people. We actually made phone calls in those days. Yes. Uh, called a lot of people, and by the end of the weekend, I had a write-up uh, for a one-hour special called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Much to my surprise, not that long after, they, they picked it up. And uh, that was the beginning, the real beginning of me as a food journalist. Wow, that was the start. That show, unbelievable. The need to eat. The need to eat. And, you know, it's such a popular show that so many people have watched the incredible amount of seasons. And how did one Mr. Guy Fieri become associated with this show? Well, I, when they said, let's do a special, I said, okay, you want me to suggest some hosts? And they said, no, we got, we got the guy we want you to use. His Mm. name is Guy Fieri. He just won the Food Network Star Contest and we're trying to get them um, established in prime time. So I said, okay. And I went and I'd never heard of the Food Network Star Contest. I had yeah. no idea who Guy Fieri was. I went to my computer and I Googled Guy Fieri and I pretty much had a heart attack. Here's this really? spiky haired guy in short pants and flip flops. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm screwed. Oh. Because <laughs> I hadn't seen his work. Now, yeah. It quickly became apparent to me uh, when we started talking and and more so when we started shooting that while Guy was incredibly green and and had a ton to learn, he was able to soak it up like a sponge. And he was probably the most naturally talented TV performer I've ever come across. Mm. He was born with it. Uh, But no, I didn't ask for Guy. I didn't know who he was. And when I first saw him, I thought... This is a terrible idea. <laughs> it's funny, these stories behind the scenes of something that's popular, yeah. you know, like everybody associates, oh, you just hear, hey, everybody, welcome to Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. You're like, oh, that voice, the sound, the hair. And it's, you think, oh, this is a bad idea. You're thinking, you know. Things happen. Who knows? You know, w- William Goldman, who won two Oscars screenwriting in Hollywood, he did... Uh, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which yeah. was his favorite. And he did all the President's Men, which despite the Oscar, he says they changed the script on. Anyway, he's a legendary Hollywood Hollywood scriptwriter, or was, he's passed away. He script doctor on a bunch of stuff. His rule of Hollywood in terms of whether or not something is going to succeed, why people green light something, why something doesn't or does do well, Goldman's rule is, and I quote, no one knows anything. (laughs) It's pretty simple. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, well, when did you know like that show had some real legs to stand on? Well, after the second, well, the, the, the special did well. Yeah. And then the production companies, the big boys mm -hmm. that they had commissioned to present pitches for a real primetime show for Guy. I mean, I was filling, <laughs> I was filling time just taking and up space. Keep, yeah. keeping him on the air a bit. Uh, the pitches from those big production companies came in and the network didn't like them. So they kind of were between a rock and a hard place. They had a talent they wanted to maximize. This was back in the day when the Food Network actually believed that the Food Network star competition would generate a new generation sure. of stars. Guy is still the only one who's who's made it. But yeah. um, they, they really needed to keep his face on the air, they thought. So out of desperation, they commissioned a short first season of Diners. After the first two episodes did remarkably well, one of the executives said to me, look, this is, this is great, but understand there aren't enough restaurants in America for this to have legs. <laughs> so, you know, if we're lucky, we'll get a second season. If we're really lucky, we'll get a third. Well, I did the first 11 seasons. They're now in season 30 something. So I refer you back to Goldman's <laughs> rule. <laughs> Not enough restaurants. I mean, <laughs> there's a ton of um, restaurants. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I think, look, when it first began, I, I think there was a tendency, and I was involved in this too, to, to think of the title too specifically to think that if it wasn't an actual diner right in each show we were failing to fulfill our mandate when in fact the audience understood that it was an umbrella title that right. what it meant was we're going to take you to legitimate authentic mostly mom and pop run joints where you're going to meet some good people and see some good food i think the audience caught on to that before yeah yeah, and I think you know what's interesting is it just it's one of those shows like you can just play it nonstop. It just keeps going. It was kind yeah. of the original binging on, in some ways of shows. You could just constantly yeah. play show to show to show, take you from city to city. And I wonder, like, how did you come up with where you would go? Actually, well, uh, two ways. Number one, understand that that everything in television, in the final analysis, is a budgetary choice. Mm. Okay, uh, so one of the constraints of how we shot the show was we needed in every instance to shoot in a geography, in a geographic location right. that gave us access, if possible, to more than one state and certainly to more than one city so that as we stockpiled these things and we would shoot four segments at a time, we had enough diversity to checkerboard over the season and and be a little bit of everywhere. Right off the bat, that um, was one of the defining rules of where we could go. Secondarily, it's just footwork. It's a matter of once you're, you've figured out where you want to go, calling, yes, the telephone, Mm -hmm. uh, anybody in that town with an expertise in food, the mm -hmm. food reporters for the local paper. Back then there were local papers. Right. The, the food writer for the local magazine or, or the critic on the radio station. 
and Googling anything that had ever been written about the restaurants in question. Once a restaurant seemed possible, then it was time for several extremely detailed interviews with them about how they make what they make and why mm -hmm. they do what they do. And in that interview also was an opportunity to assess the uh, TV personality of the chef. Right. If, if the chef wasn't going to have some kind of life, it doesn't have to be humorous, but it's got to be an engaged, passionate person or TV doesn't work. In its most basic definition, TV is friendly voyeurism. Yeah. It's the opportunity to jump into the screen and hang out with someone you like hanging out with, which is Guy. But whoever he's hanging out with has to be part of that crowd too. So we would work backwards from there. And, um, and our standards were extraordinarily high. I mean, uh, I live on a tourist island on the Jersey Shore with a restaurant extremely well known for their pancakes. I thought that'd be good to put on. Right. I went and visited them and their pancake mix, they don't make their own mix. Oh, it's no. It's out of a box. Oh, no. So, no, I can't, I can't yeah. do that. Uh, we made pancakes at a diner in St. Paul, Minnesota, where their pancake batter is, is made in-house. And that's that was great. That that was wonderful. But a lot of places that might seem terrific at first glance are not. Mm. And we were very good at making these decisions from a distance. But about 5% of the time when we got there on the road, we would determine that this ain't going to cut it yeah. and would politely leave. And the network thought I was crazy because I ate that money. <laughs> right, right. But part of generating the audience that we generated was, I think, the intrinsic truthfulness of the show. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. What did you learn about yourself in doing that show for 11 years? Or what? how did you grow? It was 11 seasons. That 11 was seasons, sorry. Years. Yeah. What did you oh. learn the most about that time? I, well, I learned a hell of a lot about food <laughs> yeah. and I had the opportunity to learn a number of creative techniques. This is going to bore the audience, <laughs> but I, I think I was able to push the envelope in some ways on how you cut together this sort of program in, in a way that, that keeps it moving yeah and yet accurate i mean one of the things we ended up doing is to really bring someone inside a, a cinematic universe people don't realize that that in some respects the most important element is the sound not the pictures right because your ears can tell when things are changing or not right we literally spent 23 hours for every 30 minute episode in audio sweetening to make sure that every time a fork hit a plate, you heard it, uh, that sort of thing. I think that actually made a big psychological difference to, hmm. to viewers. They didn't know it, but, but I think it helped a lot. Wow. And so now that I'm thinking about watching this show, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, when you see on you that know. show, I mean, I don't know what they do now, but when a hamburger 
is put on a grill with mm-hmm. a spatula. The first thing you hear is the metal of the spatula right. hitting the grill. The next thing you hear is the sizzle of the burger as it starts to cook. The third thing you hear is the scrape of the spatula as it leaves. All of those little elements are important and not, well, most shows don't bother. <laughs> right. I mean, it's very detailed work. Uh, yeah. It's expensive, too. I would imagine so. Yeah. Did you, did you become a better cook after all of this? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, but, right. but understand, I've always been um, a talented, eager, absolute amateur. I see. see, I don't, I don't have the gene that real chefs have mm. to just know stuff. I mean, I can't tell you the number of chefs I've interviewed who, in the middle of a sentence, will turn around and make an adjustment to what they're cooking, just because they knew it was time to do that. Right. You know, I'm the guy who still has to cut open. Who makes for three people? I'll make four steaks, so I have yeah. the fourth one to cut open and see if it's ready. <laughs> right <laughs> there, you go. Oh my goodness, amazing! So when you were doing that show, what was the you? You clearly after eleven seasons, you you moved on. What mm-hmm. was that like for you? That process of moving on from it. Uh, it was a business decision. Yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. It's television. I, I I gave birth to my baby. That's right. Had the joy of running it the way I wanted. And then it was time to do something else, which turned out to be a craft beer show. Oh, my gosh. I love craft beer. That's yeah, well, I found out the hard way shooting the pilot that Belgian triple means triple the alcohol. <laughs> so it's very serious ABV going on there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we shot the pilot at um, Cambridge Brewing Company, Cambridge, yeah, Cambridge Brewing Company mm-hmm. in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, and they make some absolutely deadly Belgian <laughs> ales. Are we talking like 12%, 13%? 15, 15. 15? Yeah, yeah. Oh insane. my gosh. And I yeah, love high insane. ABV beers, but that's well, what, that's yeah, but uh, you shouldn't guzzle them like we did on that. Guzzle show. them, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There was a lot of damage the next morning. That's, <laughs> you asked me what I learned on the beer show. That's what I learned. <laughs> what was the show? Uh, that, what it was, it it was called? called Beer Geeks. Beer Geeks. Um, it starred Michael Ferguson, mm-hmm. one of the um, most important brewmasters in the craft brew world, um, who's an incredible talent. And we did 26 or 27 episodes where in each show we would go to a particular brewery in the first two acts we would make one or more beers in the third act we would cook with beer Mm. at a restaurant that was uh one of their customers and then in the fourth act we would at that restaurant have a a pairing dinner which was uh very proud of that series it was terrific there was a problem getting mainstream brewers you know, the big boys Mm -hmm. to support the show in advertising, because at that time, before they started buying up all the craft breweries, they saw them as competition. Oh, so these are like your Anheuser-Busch's and things like that. I will name no names, but... I said it, okay, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, you know, one thing people don't realize, the big boys, like let's use Anheuser-Busch as Mm -hmm. an example, 
have on staff and produce some of the technically finest brewers in the world. Mm. The ability that those guys have to produce, let's say, basic Budweiser right. at multiple locations across the United States in incredible volumes and maintain identical taste and quality is amazing. And a number of those guys, when you go to big name craft breweries, like I think we were at Stone and their chief brewer oh, yeah. had come from Anheuser-Busch. I mean, wow. it's, <laughs> it ain't easy. Oh, I would never guess that. That yeah. at places No, it's like, not like there's two paths. Yeah, yeah. Here's the, the crafty guys <laughs> on this side. No. It, yeah. It, brewing is a, a science. I mean, it's also an art, yeah. obviously. I mean, we spent time at um, New Belgium in yeah. Denver, where their chief taster, uh, she was amazing. And, and she would mix different aging barrels together to create a beer. Uh, and, and this boiled down entirely to her nose. Wow. That was astonishing. That, what? That was, because remember, when, when beers age in wood barrels mm -hmm. they develop different flavors um to a great extent well a based on the wood but b based on the bacteria the natural bacteria that gets in and funks around with the beers so to create a final beer you use beers from different barrels with different flavor uh characteristics right and no computer can do that this was this was a young woman just saying, there you go. That's a beer. Uh, it was pretty remarkable. That is remarkable. That's absolutely mind blowing. And to think about beer and food and the explosion of shows now that exist that have all those things. What well, do you look, you know, we, we have as a society, I think, developed a true interest in stretching our palates. But let's also be clear, as a society, for many people, this is the latest hip, cool thing to do. Right. And right. tomorrow it might be unicycles. <laughs> so there are different crowds expressing interest in food and beer. Yeah. Uh, there is a strata of that rock that's in it for the hip factor. And then there are those who are in it because it's really important. Yeah. Do you, is there a percentage of that or is it, did no, you I'm see? I'm not going to go there. They, no? they said to quote Chevy Chase on the initial season of SNL when he was playing President Ford, they said there would be no math. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, so this all seems like it vaults into food Americana here. Yes. And tell me a little bit about the book and why'd you, why'd you write it? What is this, a culmination of your experiences? Well, you got to understand every TV producer uh, wants to write a book. Mm. Producing television, the writing that you do, and it's very hard to do this. People don't give it the respect it deserves, but you're writing to be invisible. Mm. You're writing to slowly push viewers to the next audio visual experience. You're tying pieces together. If you do it right, you're servicing the pictures and, and spoken words. That's different than the freedom to sit down 
and tell a narrative story starting with it was a dark and stormy night. Yeah. Um, so every TV producer wants to do a book. Secondly, there is a luxury in doing a book of much more real estate than you'll ever get on TV. You, you can take a subject to a deeper place. You, you can jam in more information. And I, ever since I moved to Europe and worked in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, and then came back to the States and created diners, my interest in foods and foodways simply continued to grow. And at one point, I finally said to myself, it's time to sit down and do it. So, so I did. Now, what I didn't realize as a first-time author is that I chose to feature basically a dozen or so foods or cuisines as part of the American cuisine. Mm -hmm. uh, what I didn't realize is, thus I had a dozen chapters. I didn't really think it through, but each of those chapters then ended up requiring almost as much research as a full book would have. Because <laughs> you do have to know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the researching and writing took two years and uh, it's out now doing very well. The reviews are quite good. Basically what I discuss in there is in a nation of immigrants, how we created a unique American cuisine out of the cuisines of so many other countries and cultures, everything from pizza, to fried chicken, to sushi. I mean, sushi is now as American as you can get. Oh my goodness, yes. Yeah, the, the uh, one of the top executives at the company that produces the most prepackaged sushi in America, they have what they call sushi robots hmm. that mechanically do most of it on an assembly line. Wow. She explained to me that when she was in high school, if she and her friends ran off to grab a quick lunch, it was burgers. Her kids today, They'll do the same thing, but it's with sushi. Amazing. Yeah. Now, we, we modify these dishes yeah. to our tastes, to our palate, to, to make use of ingredients we have here, uh, to replace ingredients that we don't have. Uh, I mean, obviously, deep fried sushi is, is not something you're going to find in Japan, but, but. In some places in Japan today, you will find a California roll kind of invented crazy. here, <laughs> and then it made its way back there Remakes as, back as an there. American oddity. Yeah. What's interesting about the California roll is people assume that because it has no raw fish in it, it was invented for Americans. There's a huge debate among food historians, many of whom say it was in fact invented for Japanese customers during a time of year when fatty tuna was simply unavailable seasonally. Mm. And the chef chose avocado for the mouthfeel and fat content that would replace the tuna. Wow. That's crazy. All the information you don't know about, but you think you know. I mean, this, that's pervasive in a lot of subjects and topics, but the behind the scenes, behind the curtain, aspect of that did you learn even more about 
everything you knew about food, did you feel like, wow, learning this, how to get all this information and write this book even enhanced your ability to know about oh, food? Oh, yeah. Well, the great thing about being, the only way to be a journalist is if you're naturally curious. Right. Otherwise, it's drudgery. It's research. It's like <laughs> cramming for a history test. Yeah. No, I. this was an incredible opportunity to learn an amazing amount that I simply did not know about so much of our American food. I mean, lox and bagels, the quintessential mm -hmm. New York Jewish food, I'm Jewish and from New York, was not eaten by Jews in Europe. They oh. didn't have lox. They, they had smoked fish, which they did not put on bagels. Yeah. Lox and bagels only came to be in the United States after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad made it possible to ship salmon from Seattle to New York. Hmm. But there was no refrigeration back then. And the only way to get the salmon to New York without rotting was to pack it in salt. Well, salt brine salmon yep. is lox. <laughs> That's where lox came from. And, you know, somebody said, hey, let's put it on a bagel. And then a guy in upstate New York failed in an attempt to recreate French Neufchatel cheese. Mm -hmm. And what he came up with was called cream cheese, which was perfect to cut the saltiness of the lox. There you go. The world's perfect sandwich was born Crazy. again by a series of random events. Does it feel like that's how a lot of things come sure. to be? Yeah, you know. Sure, of course. Um, and so, look, so much of food is born of necessity. Mm. Uh, you know, chicken wings were were never the preferred part of a chicken, but if you were poor and African American uh, or or white in the sure. south but the poverty more often affected African-American families. And on a Sunday, the preacher came because the preacher in the South would go from family to family after service every Sunday on a rotating basis. And when the preacher came over, you would serve a chicken, which was called the preacher bird. Well, he got the first piece. Mom and dad got the next. By the time I got down the table to the kids, it was wings and feet. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. The, the history of our food and, and all things. It's You know where fried chicken came from? Where did it come from? Well, you tell me. I don't know where it came from, honestly. Okay. I feel like it's it I feel a like it's a southern thing, but I, you know, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a combination of the food ways of Scottish immigrants. Come on. And enslaved Africans who did have some history of frying in Africa, but more to the point um implemented the their preferred taste profile scottish immigrants yeah i mean who French would know that who would they, know well that? i didn't know it before i started to, <laughs> to research the book but yeah scottish immigrants i mean that i'm not sure a lot of people would know that yeah, <laughs> i mean it's sort of a, a hidden fact i would fried chicken in scotland mm. now, hey listen <laughs> they like haggis that's true. Which, by <laughs> yeah. the way, is damn good. If, I actually, yeah. It is good, actually. If done the right way, it's very good. <laughs> well, but again, we're back to food of the poor. Virtually every culture has some food, very high in fat and calories, and usually made inside an internal piece like of a the animal. Or something, yeah. Like in Jewish Eastern European tradition, we have something called kishka, 
which mm-hmm. is fat and grain in stuffed derma. What's derma? I think it may be stomach. Anyway, mm. these were all ways to provide um, affordable energy yeah. to, to poor people in the morning as they were going to go out and work the fields. Um, yeah. And again, uh, so much of what we eat came from poverty. I mean, you pay 60 bucks for a lobster today in a restaurant, but when the explorers and settlers came over here and saw lobsters, they had no idea what to do with them. Yeah. And it was Native American culture that stepped in and the Native Americans taught them to wrap the lobsters in seaweed and throw them on a fire. That's amazing. Which is today something you see in the continued existence of the New England clam bake. Yeah. I think it was something like Scrapple, you know, like. Oh, Scrapple's a perfect example. Right, it's a great example yeah. of that. It, it's, it's, we're squeamish in this country yeah. about awful, the, the interior organs of animals, which f- have long been a standard part of virtually every culture's diet, because when you have no money, you don't throw anything out. Uh, it's fascinating. I was taken to a huge Chinese food court uh, in Queens, a borough of Mm -hmm. New York, by a couple of Chinese immigrant students. And this massive, this was before COVID, this massive food hall, every stand in it was selling food intended for Chinese, not Anglo-Americans. Because we're finally at the point where there's enough of a Chinese um, population in the United States from recent immigration that you can actually have a business with the target clientele being Chinese as opposed to Americans who want beef and broccoli and General Chow's chicken. Yeah. The, the food sold, and there's nothing wrong with either of oh, those as yeah. part of Chinese American cuisine, which is a different cuisine than you'll find oh. in China. It was created here. But um, th- this hall was filled with food as served and eaten in China. Mm. And it was just terrific. And some of it was familiar, hand-pulled noodles, um, dumplings, even um, a fascinating breakfast crepe in which two crepes sandwich a crunchy piece of crepe. Uh, phenomenal, but also in many instances, awful. Hmm. Uh, I had what's called dry pot, which is a very spicy concoction of Hmm. various ingredients that you pick like you're at Chipotle. Only here you're picking from um, artery and gizzard and duck blood and tripe Hmm. and tendon and other things that are obviously less extreme to the American palate. But I got to tell you, it was fantastic. I mean, I wish I didn't know the duck blood was blood. Right. But it tasted sort of like a metallic um, liverwurst. I'm one of the four people in America who likes liverwurst. (laughs) Four Um, people. But the point is, I don't know how much of that authentic food. Mm. I just used a word I hate to use. You don't like authentic? You don't think it's a bad word? It's a bad word. It implies that there's real food and unreal food. Oh, and, I see. And even in China, as in any country, the cuisine continues to develop. I mean, right. one of the most popular dishes in China today is scrambled eggs and tomatoes. 
Oh, really? Yeah, every cuisine continues to change. Uh, the point I was making inarticulately, though, was I don't know how far Americans will go in adopting Chinese, some of the more seemingly extreme Chinese dishes. Although there's a whole movement called uh, Chinese 2.0 hmm. in which young chefs are trying to do more with ingredients and meals as served today in China and are also in some cases trying to channel the soul of that and those flavors in a way that is um, perhaps more palatable for many Americans. Although there's a restaurant in the book that's across the street from the University of Indiana in Bloomington, which has two menus, as an American Chinese menu and a Chinese Chinese ah. menu. And because uh, there's a lot of Chinese immigrant students at Indiana. Hmm. Uh, and the, the owner who comes from, I don't know if it's Hong Kong or the mainland. I, I had a brain meltdown. He says, you know, some of the some of the Americans they'll try what's on the, yeah. what's on the uh, Chinese Chinese menu, and if they don't want to, I, I've got beef and broccoli. Yeah, there you go. Wow. Does this change your how you per look at food after all this time? How you approach it? Um... It it has re-emphasized to me my core belief, which is uh, don't go into a chain restaurant. Oh my God, I'm with you. Don't, don't go in and let them put some plastic reheatable stuff Ooh. in a microwave. It, it has reinforced my belief that the best food is honest food made fresh by someone who gives a damn. The giving a damn part is incredibly important. There's a reason this is called the service industry. Mm. Successful restaurateurs are people who really want to make customers happy. And a bunch of them got wiped out during the pandemic. Yeah. So, which is a shame. Uh, th those are the places I want to eat. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you said, you know, like, no chain restaurants. I'm like, man, I've been saying that for years. <laughs> like, don't, now, well, let me know. be clear. I'm not going to shoot you if you if you go to In-N-Out. Sure. Because that's fresh made in front of you, and it's yeah. pretty good. Actually, but, I love In-N-Out, but that's like one of the only places. Well, it, like and, really and, and plus, I, I don't know if In-N-Out is as good as I think it is, or if I think it's that good only because I live on the East Coast and I can't get it here. Right. So when I go to the West Coast... Uh, my friends and I end up late at night sitting on the hood of the car, <laughs> jamming double doubles, double, double. style yeah. into our faces. <laughs> so and you can't even take, look, it's fresh beef. I know that it's, you can't taste the beef by the time you get that thing in your mouth. <laughs> and the French fries too. They're not as oh, like, they're way amazing. different than other French fries, you know, yeah. they're way you know, different. Uh, there's something about it. now. Is it like Coors beer that when you can get it in the East, it's not special anymore? I don't know. I just remember when I was in college in Oklahoma that uh, it was a really big deal to my friends for me to smuggle a six pack of Coors back East. Really? Oh, yeah. You couldn't get Coors. And I, I don't like Coors. But back then, because you couldn't get it and because Paul Newman was always seen drinking it after a race, mm -hmm. it was the cool thing to have. Yeah. And, and would, by the way, so much of food is about perception. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's, that's very it, true. 
if I if I blindfolded you, could you tell the various fried chicken sandwiches apart? I don't know. I don't know, honestly. Um, I... I'll tell you one thing you can't tell. In the average hamburger with condiments on it, you're gonna be um you're gonna have a hell of a time telling me if that burger was frozen or fresh. Interesting. I, I explored that with a number of food scientists who acknowledge that technically speaking, if you have two burgers sitting next to each other with nothing on them and one was frozen and one was fresh ground, you could tell the difference. But that once you start to put condiments on it and put it in a bun, good luck telling me which was which. It's hard to decipher between them yeah. at that point. And there's nothing inherently wrong with yeah. frozen beef. I mean, it's like there was a great, did you ever watch Mad Men? Yes. Okay, the the episode where he's trying to write a slogan for yeah. the cigarette brand. Right. And he says to the guy who owns the company, well, tell me about it. He says, we do this, we do that, then we toast it, then we do this. And John Hamm stops him and says, that's it. That's the tagline. It's toasted. <laughs> and the cigarette guy says, they're all toasted. And Hamm says, but nobody knows that. Right. You know, that it's... <laughs> There are certain things that, that, that sell a product, and that's fine. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, like, learning also about, about how well food is prepared behind the scenes when you don't see it in front of you being yeah. prepared. Sometimes it could be horrifying to know how your food is being handled. Well, prepared. It, look, it depends. There's, there's one thing that was always a problem on diners, which is an absolutely sanitary, clean commercial kitchen. Um looks like crap to the average viewer because mm. all of the pans from use have blackened. Yeah. And there are sections of the stove that are reflecting their, their wear and their use. Yeah. And the average individual doesn't understand that that's cooking. Yeah. So when we would go into a restaurant, we would actually um, replace some of the, the, the pans if need be with right with fresh ones and and make these guys clean up beyond anything necessary because to folks at home it looks terrible right it's and not it's tv it's, it's, right i mean you got to make it look good well right? yeah i mean on look, some level you, you got to make the food appealing yeah um <laughs> you gotta <laughs> there's things you have to do right most definitely well i gotta tell you uh david this is amazing information and uh a real pleasure to speak with you. Well, and, pleasure on my part. I, yeah. I Look, I care deeply about this book. I'm very proud of this book. I've been a journalist for 51 years now. Wow. And th this is, as far as I'm concerned, the best thing I've done. Wow. It's, I'm very happy to tell a story about something so vital to our lives through the stories of people who do it and have done it. Um, you know, the, the people who own these restaurants that have been there forever. It's uh, it's a good feeling. Yeah. I would imagine it has to be. And I think the audience is going to love hearing about all these stories. Storytelling is amazing. You tell some amazing stories and thank you. Yeah, no problem. And um, I look forward uh, for a lot of people who check this out. So Mr. David Page, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And can I plug the name of the book again? Please. Food Americana. It's available at Amazon, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble, 
and I'm paying to put a kid through grad school. So pick oh up a gosh. copy. Get a copy. That's a, it's expensive out there for school. Come on. You know? <laughs> Darren, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure here. Thank you. Thank sir. you for listening Thanks. to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.